I have a picture in my office that actually I'm keeping for someone else, but I like it a lot. It's a picture of Jesus, and the thing that makes it unique is he's smiling. How many pictures have you seen of Jesus in your lifetime, and how many of those pictures were the picture of a smiling Jesus? It just almost doesn't exist. You know, what's the problem? Now, the interesting thing about our text in 1 Timothy 1.11 is when it talks about the glorious gospel of the blessed God. I had a course from Zane Hodges years ago, and he pointed out the fact that that word blessed is exactly the same word that is used in the Sermon on the Mount. And it could very easily and I might add, legitimately be translated happy. The glorious gospel of a happy God. Does that sound strange to your ears? Now, I have to say to you that whatever we say about Jesus, if we could get Jesus from a sober look to a smile, that would be great. But some people think about Jesus in sober terms. What does that do for our picture of God in the Old Testament? I mean, isn't it true that most people think somehow the Jesus of the New Testament and the God of the Old Testament are very closely related in terms of their personalities? How many people think of the God of the Old Testament as somehow angry and hostile, almost waiting for people to fail so that he can pounce in judgment on them? Well, some people might try to explain that by saying, well, it's the difference between the Old Covenant and the New. But is that really possible? Uh, if the Bible is right in saying that God does not change, then His nature does not change and His disposition doesn't change, so He can't be mad in the Old Testament and happy in the New. What I'm going to suggest to you is that our perception of God may be a little distorted. And we ought to take a look in the Scriptures to see what really is the disposition of God. And how does that bear upon the gospel of Jesus Christ and upon the disposition of believers? Strangely, when I got to thinking my way through this, I ended up at the text that was the focus of my message two weeks ago in Exodus Chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. Well, take a look with me there at that revelation of God the Father of His glory to Moses as He discloses His disposition. You might say His attributes, but His basic disposition. In verse 6 of Exodus 34, we start by reading, Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children, and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Now let's start by asking ourselves, what did Moses take away from that? How did Moses hear those words about the disposition of God? 
Did he come away with a sense that God was angry and eager to wipe out the nation Israel? Or did he come away with the sense that God is gracious and compassionate and eager to forgive? Would you not agree with me that Moses' whole intercession with God, which ends up with God going with His people, being in the midst of that sinful people, you have to say Moses took away the fact that the emphasis of those words falls on the grace of God, not on the judgment of God. Now, it doesn't deny the judgment of God. Don't misunderstand. It doesn't deny the judgment of God, but it sees grace as God's preference. Now, I have a strange witness to my observation about that text, if I am right, and you will never guess who it is. Jonah. You know what I think of Jonah, right? You know, I always love to pound on that guy. But he got one thing right. A lot of things wrong. One thing right. Look at what Jonah says in his protest to God. Remember, God says to go to Nineveh and proclaim this. By the way, Nineveh was the ISIS of his day. They did horrible things to terrorize people. Skin people and tack that skin to the wall. Listen, they did all kinds of things. You think things are bad today? Well, they weren't good then either. And, and Jonah was not eager to go preach a message where people got saved, was he? And so when Nineveh repents, and by the way, they repent on the basis that perhaps the God of Israel was a gracious God. That was the basis on which the Ninevites repented. And then Jonah gets really mad. And so he says, it really displeased Jonah, and he became angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. He and Moses agree. And here's the interesting part. He leaves off the judgment part of Exodus 34, doesn't he? He forgets it. And the reason he does is because he gets the gist of what God is saying. I am gracious and compassionate. I love to forgive. And Jonah says, I knew it. I knew that about you. I hate it. But he leaves out the judgment part because he knows that's not the heart of God. Now, if we look at the rest of Scripture, we see that that's consistent with what the Scriptures say to us. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. God says, Say to them, As surely as I live, declares the Lord, the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but prefer that the wicked change his behavior and live. God prefers that men be saved, not that men be condemned. Here's, here's a text which now describes the judgment of God. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 21. 
For the Lord will rise up at Mount Perizim. He will be stirred up as the valley of Gibeon to do his task, his unusual task. So God prefers to save. When God brings judgment, it is viewed as his unusual work, not his preference, but that which he does of necessity. That really fits the Exodus 34 text. Lamentations 3.33 says, For he is not predisposed to afflict or grieve people. That's our God. Old Testament, New Testament. So in the New Testament we read in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, The Lord is not slow concerning his promise as some regard slowness, but is being patient toward you because he does not wish for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The delight of God is in the salvation of men, not in their eternal destruction. The delight of God. I did not say God won't do it. We as parents know that sometimes we must do things to our children that is not our delight and hopefully not theirs. But it is something that must be done. 1 Timothy chapter 2 says, This is a good and acceptable thing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. I love the fact that Ken picked Isaiah chapter 55 as the text for our worship this morning. Because I believe that text depicts the heart of our God with regard to men. And you'll notice that text is an invitation. It is a beseeching of men to return, to repent, and to enter into the blessings which God has for his people. Is that not right? And you'll notice when you get down next to the last verse in chapter 55, it talks about joy and rejoicing. He's not holding a stick out in this sense. He's holding a carrot out. God has blessing for his people, but they must return and repent and be restored to his blessings, which are his preference. So that says to me, the God of the Old Testament is not an angry God waiting to judge with eagerness. He is the same God as the New Testament. He is eager to save. And that brings us to the New Testament as this is all played out. Oops, I skipped a part. i got to go back to Genesis for a minute. Genesis 1 and 2 are the creation accounts. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a view of the creation accounts you've probably never heard before. You may never hear again. Would you, and by the way, I am not denying their literal truth. I am not denying at all anything about the chronology of that. I am simply saying Genesis 1 and 2 are not a scientific account of creation. Would that really have been beneficial? Could we even comprehend how God could call something from nothing into being. All you could say is God just said it come about and it does. You'll notice that there is a process at least of six days, right? At least a six-day process that goes on. That's my inclination. And that's the way the text reads. 
But he doesn't say God created the world out of nothing. Genesis 1-2 says that the earth was without form and void, right? Genesis 1-2. And there was darkness over the face of the earth. What you see in the following verses is God taking a mess and making it into a beautiful creation. That's fascinating to me. Why does he describe it in those ways? That you take this thing and you, in an orderly fashion, take this chaotic mass of stuff and you transform it into this beautiful creation. And God persistently says, in response to his own work, it is good. Does that not suggest to you that God finds pleasure in his work? Would that not be true? God enjoyed his work. And he said, this is really good. This is really good. When you come to uh, Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse 4, you see the second creation account. And in that creation account, you see a description of things that are not good that God addresses. And by the time he's done, it's better than you would have ever expected. But my point is, God is the one who fixes, if you want to put it in those terms, God is the one who fixes creation in, in, in chapter 1. He is the one who fixes creation in chapter 2. So you have no rain. But by the time God gets done, you know, you have a mist and then you have four rivers. Of course, we got the flood and that brings in a whole bunch of water, but that's later down the, the, the stream. There's no shrub and no plant. How does God address that? He addresses it so there is a beautiful garden with every conceivable form of beauty and taste. There is no man to cultivate. So God creates Adam and Eve to care for the garden. And of course, the grand finale, right, is there's no mate for Adam. And so God creates this wonderful companion for Adam that is far greater than he could have conceived, I suspect. And so what we see in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is God is the one who fixes He's portrayed as the one who fixes. I'm not denying the creation out of nothing. I'm saying, why does God choose to describe it in these terms, in these fix-it terms? I think there are two reasons. One is, it's preparation for the account of the fall in chapter 3. Because the very things that Satan is saying about God are proven to be false in chapters 1 and 2. The act of rebellion in chapter 3 is a denial and an ignorance of the very things that God has done and the God who did them. But it's also preparation for the new creation. When you, when you study through the Old Testament and the prophets, you will discover that Israel ends up in a horrible mess. Would you not agree? A terrible mess. And God's going to fix that, and he describes it as the new creation. And it seems to me that what he's saying there is that he's going to take this mess and he's going to transform it like he did before. 
He's going to transform that into something that is beautiful. And by the way, there are texts to back that up. It is interesting to me when you look at the condition of the nation Israel, that you see this chaotic mess. And look with me, I want you to see this in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 23. Can you actually turn there in your Bibles? All right, scroll there if you have to, but just get to Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 23. This is describing Judah that is in a horrible spiritual state, and they desperately need to be renewed. To be saved, if you want to use those terms. It says, I looked on the earth, verse 23, I looked on the earth and behold, it was formless and void. Now, where have we heard those words before? And to the heavens, and they had no light. Do you think it's accidental that God spoke of the restoration of His people in terms that mirrored the creation in Genesis chapter 1? you think that's accidental? you think that choice of words just happened? I would suggest to you that the Genesis account laid the, the, the foundation, set the stage, and now what we see is God describing a new creation. Now, I, I've told you this before, but we, in seminary, we had to write a thesis, and so I, Dr. Walkie, conned me into writing mine on the Exodus motif in Isaiah 40 through 55. To be honest with you, he wanted me to do it in all the prophets, and even the doctoral dissertation guy wouldn't take that on. But I, I picked up this whole theme of the Exodus. There are two major themes that run all the way through the Old Testament and into the New. One is creation. And the second is the Exodus. And what you see in the Exodus is you see the imagery of passing through the river and whatever. Uh, and what's interesting is God seems to say something like this. You know, I took you out into the desert. Uh, and I, or, or I should say it this way. I took you through the Red Sea and I made the path through the sea like a desert. Dry as a desert. They walked right on through. Now I'm going to take the desert and put a sea in it. And so God, in effect, when he's describing the new, the, the new creation that he's going to do, he sort of inverts it. And so he says, did you think this was good? Then watch this. And he does that with both the Exodus and with creation. But there is a similarity in that. God is taking a mess and he is making it into what will be a beautiful thing when he is finished with his work. Now we go to the New Testament. You find in Jeremiah, remember I read that text in Jeremiah 4, where that form and void. In the next chapter, Jeremiah chapter 5, it says this. Rome, verse 1, Roam to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem and look now and take note and seek in her open squares, if you can find a man, if there is one who does justice, who seeks truth, then I will pardon her. I wrote in my margin, Jesus is the man. Right? You remember the, 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 the way in which Abraham 
pled with God for Sodom. And he said, you know, if there are 50, and then he bargains down to 10, and the reality is there weren't. Now what God says is, here is this, 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 uh, people who are under judgment. And God says, if I find one righteous man, I'll save the nation. And Jesus is the man. That's where we come in the New Testament to the beauty of our Lord Jesus. And so we're not surprised when we come to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. We read, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set out for him, he endured the cross. Jesus pursued salvation as that which was joyful to him. Is that not right? Obviously, it's joyful to us, but it was joy to him. He set out to save because he rejoiced in it. So look what Jesus does. Right after the temptation, it's interesting to watch what Jesus does in Mark 4 and Luke 4. In Mark, uh, Matthew 4 and Luke 4. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, it describes Jesus going to Galilee of the Gentiles. And it says, a light shined in a dark place. Galilee was the hell hole of Israel. It was the most God-forsaken part of that territory. And in fact, one of the commentators says, when Jesus went to Galilee of the Gentiles, it looked like he, he did something wrong, like he missed his cue. What are you doing in that place? I would suggest to you that because God loves to save, the greater the salvation, the greater His pleasure and so he goes to the very worst part. Not to Jerusalem. Although we could say that was the worst part. But in, in, in Israel's eyes, this was the worst. Remember, the accusation about Jesus and his, and his disciples was they were Galileans. And, and that was like, enough said. Who needs to say anything more? That's where Jesus went with the light of the gospel. Because he loves to save. Matthew 5-7, through seven, then we come to the Sermon on the Mount. Who is Jesus addressing? And you might say, who is Jesus attacking? <laughs> right out of the gun, Jesus is taking on the self-righteous scribes and Pharisees, and he's giving hope to those who are poor, Luke 6, and poor in spirit, Matthew 5, those who mourn, those who are distressed. Jesus came to those, I want to say, who were broken. Jesus came to broken people in broken places because he is a God who delights in fixing broken men. I think that's true Old Testament and New. Now look at Luke chapter 4, again, right after the temptation account in Luke's Gospel. Jesus goes to the synagogue at Nazareth. You know, in verses 16 and following, he goes there and he cites Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. So I'll start reading at verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. 
because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to release the captives and the regaining of sight to the blind and to set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Is that not good news? Is it not good news to those who are broken? Broken physically, broken spiritually, broken emotionally, broken people. He came. And that was proof. Remember when John the Baptist says, did I get this wrong? In effect, Jesus says, look what I did. Is that not what Messiah was predicted to do in the Old Testament? And what Jesus did when He came fixed that which was broken. So who do we find Jesus focusing His attention on? Who do we find Jesus ministering to? Well, I, I, I didn't do this order. I, I mean, I just picked this order, so don't blame me. Immoral women comes first. That <laughs> wasn't with any logic. It was just, I was thinking about John chapter 4, Samaritan woman. This is a woman that because she was a woman, because she was a Samaritan, and because she was immoral, she would never have been addressed as she did. And notice the tone of the way Jesus deals with her. That's part of what I want you to see. The tone of our Lord Jesus with her is, I come and I can give you living water. Does He ignore her sin? Not at all. But it is not a condemning approach. It is an inviting approach to her. Then you look at the woman in John chapter 8, caught in adultery. All kinds of things Jesus could have said and done. But He simply says to her, neither do I condemn her. Go and sin no more. There's a Jesus who loves to fix broken lives. And He does it in a winsome, attractive way. Luke chapter 7. Here's the sinful woman washing Jesus' feet at the table of a self-righteous man. He says to himself, if Jesus knew who this lady was, <laughs> he wouldn't be anywhere near her. No, if he knew who Jesus was, he would know exactly why that woman could draw near. Because Jesus is a God who loves to save. And he's a God to whom men want to draw near who are broken and open to his care. Now we come to unclean men. And there are many of those. But think of the leper in, in Mark chapter 1. Here's somebody nobody would touch. He says to Jesus, if you want to, you can make me clean. Jesus did. He did want to. That was his disposition. That was his delight. So a man that nobody would have touched was there ministered to by the Lord. Legion. In Mark chapter 5, here's a man that scared the fire out of everybody. They wanted to stay as far away from him as they could. Frightening man. Couldn't be chained. Don't you love that last description? He was sitting before Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. Jesus loves to fix broken lives. Now look what Jesus said. 
When people questioned him about the way in which he frequently had contact with sinners, Jesus said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I came, Jesus is saying, in effect, I came to fix broken people. And you do that in the emergency room. (laughs) Not on the golf course, right? That's where Jesus was. So when you think, just as one great example, when the the whole question of Jesus' association with sinners, if I were to go to one passage, one chapter in the Bible, it would be Luke chapter 15, right? Luke chapter 15. Story of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And in every one of those instances, there is great rejoicing at the restoration of that which was lost. The man has a hundred sheep. He loses one. He leaves the ninety-nine and goes and finds the one and he greatly rejoices over that one lost sheep that he has found and he calls on others to rejoice with him. A woman loses a coin and she greatly rejoices in its restoration and calls on others to join with her. A father loses his son and when that son returns, he celebrates and rejoices at the restoration of a lost soul. That is the heart of our Lord Jesus. And what I am trying to say to you is, that is the heart of God. That is the God that we love and we worship and we serve. A God whose predisposition is to heal and to save. So where does that take us? Well, I'd like to say something with the possibility that someone in my hearing is not a believer. The gospel really is good news. It really is good news, and especially to broken people. I think sometimes unbelievers look at the church and they look at Christians and all they see is condemnation. Condemnation of an act they have done of of some sin they habitually uh, continue. But I see with our Lord Jesus an invitation, an invitation to those who know they are broken and who know that He loves to fix broken lives. How do you explain, I'm back to my smiling Jesus thing, how do you explain the fact that little kids apparently had to kind of be beat off with a stick to keep them away from Jesus, right? It wasn't just the parents. It was the kids. They were attracted to him. Why? Kids know when they are welcome and when they are not. Is that not true? Kids get it. You can send a signal which says, keep your distance, or you can send a signal that says, come on down. And Jesus sent an inviting signal. And that's the way it was with sinners. Those who in one sense should have the greatest level of dread because of the magnitude of their sin. They were drawn to Jesus because somehow deep down they knew Jesus' delight was to save and to fix broken lives. 
And so I say to anyone who may not be a believer, that's the Jesus of the Gospels. That's the Jesus that we love and serve. That's the Jesus that gave Himself. Jesus intervened in human affairs because He loves to save. He lived the perfect life, the only one to fulfill the requirements of the law. The only one that you could call truly righteous. And that person took on the sin and guilt and condemnation that should be ours. And He bore it on the cross of Calvary so that we may be saved. He did that to fix our broken lives. Somebody may say, you don't know how broken mine is. No, no, I don't, thankfully. Do you know what's true? The more they're broken, the greater the pleasure. The more they're broken, the greater the joy. Because that demonstrates the vastness and the greatness of God's work in Christ. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, who has God chosen? Look around, those of you who are, are proud, think you're, you know, you're doing so well. He says, God didn't choose many who are wise, noble, well-born, aristocrats. He chose the simple things, the foolish things of this world to confound the wisdom of the wise. God picked losers so that when He transformed their lives, it would be obviously His work and not theirs. The problem is not whether you are too sinful for God to save. The real question is, are you too good? Jesus says, I came to save the sick. I came to call sinners to repentance. Those who received the harsh words of our Lord were the self-righteous. They didn't need Jesus. And those are the ones who fall under His condemnation. Because there is condemnation. Those are the ones who will spend eternity in hell because there is a hell. That's a reality. But men spend eternity in hell because they reject the beauty and the grace of a God who came to save. Now let me say a couple of things to believers. You know, the Gospel that we proclaim, it's under attack from all kinds of different forces. There's the legalist force that says, no, in order to be saved, you just got to try harder and you got to keep all these rules, right? Rule keeping. That's the way. Earn your way. Paul says clearly in Romans 3, nobody by the works of the law can be justified. It's only Jesus. And then there's what I'm going to call the prosperity gospel, and I mean that in the broadest sense. I don't mean only those who say, if you trust Jesus, you'll be rich. I'm thinking of the Joel Olstein folks, frankly, who basically are saying that if you come to Jesus, everything you want, oftentimes in your selfish inclination and nature, those things God's going to give you, friends, popularity, success, whatever it is. So it's a kind of prosperity. And, and they really mess up the gospel. And then there's that third group which let's just call them the give them hell folks. 
Westboro Baptist Church. I don't know if they have a gospel at all. It seems to me they'd be great Jonas, would they not? They're just going around telling people, in effect, they're going to hell. And they don't seem to care. So you've got this whole spectrum. I frankly feel that we, uh, let me say it more personally, I frankly feel that I am more reactive to the prosperity kind, the, the Joel Osteen kind, and because of that, I may be tempted to downplay the goodness of the gospel and, and the winsomeness of Christ and the beauty of those things that he offers because I'm afraid it's going to sound like him. And, and I, I somehow I've never worried about being, you know, like the Westboro Baptist folks. I've never really agonized about that too much. But the reality is, if I try to get too far from Joel Olstein, I'm moving that way. And it seems to me that we as Christians have to really look at ourselves and say, A, is the disposition of God, which we see Old Testament and New, is that my disposition? Is that the way I come across? Is that my persona? When I come across with the gospel, is my gospel a gospel of good news, of hope and deliverance? And joy. Or is it just an escape hatch from hell? I think the gospel truly is good news. And I think we need to be careful to protect and preserve it. And the tone with which we proclaim it speaks volumes. I have to admit to you, there are things that make me very angry. I thought I wasn't going to tell you this, but I will. It's now better for a chicken who lays eggs to sell in California than it is for a fetus in the womb. Do you know that? California law passed now. If you're going to sell eggs in California, your chicken has to have room to flap its wings. And yet we'll kill fetuses in the womb. We're, we're being told on television these poor dogs that are stray dogs that might be euthanized that we ought to save them. But we're not saving babies. Do you know that one out of every five pregnancies ends up in an abortion? I have to say, that makes me mad. But I need to be careful that my anger does not overshadow the fact that Jesus came to save the worst of sinners. And He came to do it by drawing them to Himself. One last thing. Parents. What is the picture our kids get of God by looking at us? Do we really portray that joyful, may I say, happy God and His blessed Gospel? Because that's the way it ought to be. Father, thank You for this time. Thank You for the beauty, not only of the Lord Jesus, but of Your beauty as You come across in the pages of Scripture as a God who delights to save and who woos people back to You. If there's anyone in the hearing of my voice that does not know the Lord Jesus as the beautiful Savior and the One who fixes broken lives, may they turn to Him because of His sacrificial death in their place. In Jesus' name, Amen.